Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Christina Anthony is an East St. Louis native who came up through the Chicago comedy scene. Anthony joined the Second City, where she performed and co-wrote three award-nominated sketch reviews for the legendary comedy institution. But she almost never got the recognition she deserved in either Chicago or Los Angeles, and was ready to hang up her acting career before responding to one last audition call. Her perseverance has paid off, as Anthony won the role of Aunt Denise on one episode of ABC's Blackish, which has led to a co-starring role as Dee Dee on the spin-off sitcom Mixedish. Anthony sat down with me to talk about her path, not giving up on your dreams, and speaking up for a better, more inclusive comedy community. So let's get to it! So, Christina Anthony, uh, last things first. Uh, congratulations on uh, your role as Aunt Dee Dee on Mixed Dish. Uh, that show takes place in the year 1986. And I'm wondering, what was 1986 or the 80s in general like for you? Oh, well, first of all, thank you very much. I'm very happy to be able to pay my bills. <laughs> this is a relief. Um, the 80s, I was a kid during the 80s, so I was probably... Um, Santa, we have a character, Santa Monica, a little girl in the show. So that's probably her age, like eight, six, seven, eight, maybe. So faintly, I mean, I remember the 80s, but I just remember wanting to be a woman so badly during the 80s. So this is kind of a dream come true to play this role because I used to watch my aunts like dancing to Sherelle and wearing high heels and makeup and I just remember really wanting to be a part of that and being like, you guys are so cool. This is, that outfit is amazing. Is that a full leather emerald green jumpsuit? That's beautiful. I the wish 80s, I was wearing that. The eighties did have some fashion. Um, the kid, you know, the kids though on, on the show, you know, they portray like they have a sense of confidence or a sense of their place in the world. How how old were you when you first started to figure out like where where you fit in 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 the world or in America or in East St. Louis or um probably thirty I mean I was older no the kids on our show first of all yeah they're very confident they have great parents an acting coach and a hair and makeup team I'm not gonna compare myself to them at all they always look great they have to put dirt on them to make them look more normal I'm not falling for that um no I was an awkward kid I was I was the only little black kid kind of with aside from my brother and like a couple of neighbors like at my elementary school and at my um in high school we were, my parents, my mother was a minister. So we were super sheltered. We had a lot of rules. Like there was a period of time where like, when I say my mother was strict, strict, like we couldn't wear pants strict. Like the girls, we had to wear a skirt everywhere. Um, like we couldn't, I remember we couldn't watch the Simpsons. I thought that was just terrible. My mother was like, they did great teachers in education. Okay. Um, like super strict. So I didn't fit in. It was, was it like, cultural or religious? 
cultural and religious because then I would get around my cousins or I go we go to church and they'd be like oh you talk like a white girl and you can't chant double dutch why didn't you cornrow your hair before you got here which I still can't do so take my black card so in that (laughs) sense I think yeah I very much felt like and then when I would go to school you know to my school where there weren't many black students you know I remember we had swimming lessons every week in elementary school, the school I went to. And my mother was like, don't you get your hair wet? I just pressed your hair. You know, and black hair, once it's been straightened, it would, you know, revert or go back and I would get in trouble. So I also remember not fitting in at school either and kind of just kind of being like, oh, I have to wear this terrible swim cap while all my other white girlfriends are just swimming with their hair free and just showering, you know, and just jumping back in class. And I had this really strict protocol of like making sure my hair never got wet in the pool. And so, yeah, I think growing up for sure, I, I vacillated. Is that the right word? Vacillated? Right. If you're going between, between two cultures. Yes. Uh, yeah. Between, yeah. Feeling like not black enough and not white enough. And that sense, like, and not, and not even wanting to be white, but um, wanting to feel like fully assimilated. So there would be times where, yes, people would be like singing a Tears for Fear song and then maybe someplace else I would be, they would be like singing, you know, some new Run DMC song, but I didn't know either one because my mother was like, we also can't listen to the radio. So it was a feeling of like not knowing as much about Black culture as I wished I could just because my mother was so strict and then not knowing some things about white culture just because Again, my mother was so strict. Eventually, though, I did like learn those things. I I was I got behind on it, and so probably why I'm still personally stuck in the '80s. <laughs> so now I know everything. I know everything about Tears for Fears and Sherelle and Michael McDonald and the Gap Band. But people are like, "Girl, we're not on that. You don't know Drake. You're late." <laughs> but so it's probably good I'm on a show that's set in the '80s. Because I'm just now catching up with 80s pop culture, pop culture myself, from just like this really sheltered childhood. So if you were sheltered as a child, did you end up then like overcorrecting once once you hit like your teen years or or after high school? Did you rebel and go like super? Oh, yeah. I don't know if I, re- yeah, maybe. I guess I think, yeah, I would say no, I probably didn't. I still didn't have the nerve. I mean, I definitely went to college. It was, you know, I had a great experience in college, but that definitely was where I like met, where I finally like met more black people that were like me. And they were like, oh yeah, my mom is like really strict. And my parent, my dad's really strict. And I was the only black kid in my school too. I think that was the first time I actually met kids like that was when I went to the University of Illinois. And kind of also where I started to, I was already kind of a performer, but where I kind of also started to learn more about like what I personally liked. And I, I ended up becoming like the president of the black student body at the university of Illinois and kind of learning that the difference between like, even though you're assimilating and you're learning more about, you know, the, the dominant culture, they don't necessarily care if you do or not. They're not trying to, necessarily accept you and so I think becoming the president of the student union and kind of having this new group of friends and support system at the university that was that were black students that were politically active 
you know, I remember we were working to get the chief band, chief Illini Wack band at the university because we were like putting his face on toilet paper, stuff, crazy stuff like that. But that's where I really became like more aware of my blackness and the political statement that it meant for me to embrace my blackness. And so definitely college was, I, yeah, I would say college is where I find my identity. And there's an interesting, I'll, I'll look it up and I'll, I'll have them email it to you. But there's like this interesting article study they did about like the levels of when you're leaving assimilation and becoming coming more into your own self-identity. Mm-hmm. And I would say like, yeah, definitely college is where I certainly started to become more curious and then become definitely more confident in saying, I like that I am black. I like the way I look. I like the way my body is. I like the sound of my voice. I like the texture of my hair. And I want to learn more about these things. And so I definitely became more pro-black in college for sure. And have remained so. (laughs) Maybe to my detriment. (laughs) Well, we'll get into that in a minute. But first, I want to touch on something you just said about how when you were in student government or student politics, talking about the Illini mascot and how it's, you know, I'm, I'm 49 and it always strikes me as, is odd when so much of the online debate in culture right now in 2020, 2021 is about, or it's about political correctness. It's about people being woke or, or is that a good thing or social justice warriors and cancel culture. But so many of these things we've been talking about for decades. And so, you know, you, you were talking about the mascot at University of Illinois some, some 20 years ago. It's not a new yeah. thing to be debating these things. It's just that social media has changed the, the dynamic of it all. Yeah, I think, you know, sometimes, first of all, right is right. So whether you're ahead of your time or not, right is right. So in this case, the chief was wrong <laughs> and it was wrong then. And these mascots are wrong now. I think that the fact that it takes so long for some people to to come to that realization or that it's in style now to come to that realization or it's okay to be woke is, you know, on one hand, it's like, that's troubling. On the other hand, you can only embrace people once they finally wake up and say like, okay, thank you for being here. Welcome. I can't, you know, retrace my steps because I definitely think I've had some friends tell me, they're like, maybe you were woke too soon. You woke, too, you woke up too soon. <laughs> you know, cause you can't, I don't know. Can you, can I really be, can I really be on your, in your comedy troupe talking about, we can't, we can't um, do this racist mascot. That's, um, you know, Native American mascots are racist. Indigenous people don't need to be made fun of. We need to be honoring them. You don't want to hear that during improv practice. <laughs> Not, I mean, do you in 1999? <laughs> nah, nah, you like, ma'am, move on. I don't know what you're talking about. But in 2020, of course, 2020 was the year that the second city finally woke up. Woke up? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and in no small part due to like folks like you who signed that open letter in, in June of 2020 to, to Andrea Alexander et al. Um, what what was your specific second city experience like? Had you had you done theater at University of Illinois first or? 
I did, but I did it as not as a drama major. I did it as, you know, I was, I went to school for psychology. So I, I did productions, but they were definitely, you know, not a part of the actual art department. Mm-hmm. So I was art adjacent while I was there. And then when I got out of school and I really wanted to go to school for performing arts, but you know, my parents, they went to segregated schools. So I'm the first generation out of segregation. They were like, you are going to school for something that's real, not for, um, not for art. So, mm-hmm. but my father did say, if you're good at this, it will, it'll come back around. You'll be able to be this. So I do think you need training, but it's okay if you don't, it just might take you longer if you're a young person listening to this. Um, but yeah, so I got out of school. I wasn't necessarily doing art there, but then as soon as I got out of school and was into Chicago, yeah, I started acting. I was doing musical theater. I did the black box scene and then, um, Claudia Wallace and Keegan-Michael Key got some, somehow I found out they were doing like some kind of workshop about how to do improv and how to do characters. And they invited me to the second city. I went up there and I think I watched Keegan in a show. It was amazing. And, and then, but I remember when I went to the second city, I was also confused about where I was because I hadn't, I hadn't been to that part of Chicago. It was on the North side, which is kind of like a white part of town. Mm -hmm. And at that time I had been working in black theaters and also the outside of the second city had these old white bust, like statues of guys on the front. And I was like, is this a bank? What is this? I don't know. Where am I supposed to go? And Mm -hmm. I just remember like to, when I tell other white people this story in comedy, they're like, how could you not know about the second city? It's on North and Wells. (laughs) <laughs> that place is infamous. It is an icon. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I didn't grow up taking, they didn't have improv camp in East St. Louis. I mean, mm-hmm. we had like Catherine Dunham and you could learn how to dance, but you know, maybe Jackie Joyner Kersey came out of East St. Louis, an Olympic runner, but there wasn't like, I didn't know what the difference between sketch improv and stand up. I knew Eddie Murphy was super funny and he was on SNL. And I also heard if you want to be on SNL, to come take this class. And saying that to white people too kind of sets them off as well. Cause they're like, excuse me. I'm like, I said, I heard Eddie Murphy was on SNL and this is how you actually get on SNL. Mm-hmm. And which was really, you know, and to boil it down, that is the truth, right? That theater is a pipeline to, you know, one of the greatest sketch and comedy jobs on, te- on television. But that stuff was like very secret, like how you got an audition, when they were asking for submissions, you know, when Lauren would come to town. I mean, I towards the end of my career there, I knew more about it, but it definitely, my experience there was one of, you know, looking back on it, I didn't know what to call it then. But at the time they told me, you're so great, you know, we want to move you along and put you on a fast track and help you learn how to do improv. And this process takes years, but we want to help move you along very quickly. And I saw like the black people I would be in class with and I would be leaving them and moving on to like a different class or going into an ensemble or touring, or eventually I got to do a stage and I was writing original material. And the whole time I was made to feel as if I was so good and I was just so excellent and I was exceptional but really it was tokenism and it's hard to like look back at that and see like every time they took me 
out of a group or out of a class and put me into something else, but I never ever performed with other black people, that's, that's tokenism. And the fact that white people, white performers, white women and men have their favorite performer, black performer, but they never can name both of us together mm. is a problem. When I came to the second city and when I finally got my big job there writing for the stage and I remember Lauren Michaels coming, he probably came maybe three times over my career there that I knew of. Maybe he was there more and I didn't know, but I probably, I think for the stage that I was on, there's two major ones. I was like the seventh or eighth black woman to ever work there to write original material. And to say eight black people have worked here in 50 years is, that's not impressive. It's not, it's, it's bad. Because that means that there's black girls that don't know how to write comedy. They're not given access to these, to these rooms, to these experiences. They don't know the difference between sketch and improv and stand up. They don't know how to write for late night. Or even the fact that like, I know, you know that I know I'm good friends with the first black woman to write for late night. Like that's crazy. And I think she's the only black woman writing for late night right now. That's crazy. That's not impressive. And I think that's my experience. Like looking back on it, I didn't know, you know, how to call it tokenism, but I now work hard to make sure that that doesn't happen in places that I am where I can make decisions. So I recently did a project with the second city. I mean, I wrote that letter, but I'm not, you know, I'm not against them or any like the institution itself, but we did a project recently. And I, you know, I was very vocal about if we do this there, you know, why there needs to be people writing this and it cannot be the same group of people who have been excluded. Like we have to include more people. Like you can't just use me to be the black person that does it. Mm-hmm. Like I also need to be supported by black, by if it's a black writer, black directors, a black editor, like who you got marketing something give me something but that also takes time too right I felt I had nothing to lose at the time I signed that letter there wasn't anything that could happen to me well what are they gonna do tell me I can't be on SNL again <laughs> so I signed it you know it didn't bother <laughs> me but other people could felt like they could really they felt like if I sign this letter what if I and I submit my script to write for late night and the person also was at second city and they see i don't want to be blackballed like i i don't think we've ever talked about this even the group of people that signed the letter but i think there are some people were afraid for sure you know like i don't want to sign this letter because what if people get mad at me and then they won't give me a job but for me i was like i i haven't been getting jobs so what's the what's gonna happen to me you know right that's that's what i you know as i was preparing for this interview i I was listening to some other interviews you've given and i know you know you've talked before about how before getting this this role as denise on mixed dish you were thinking of of packing it in and 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 quitting comedy altogether and it's crazy that someone who was in second city and was writing shows with second city would would feel like there was no support from the industry. There was no support from the the Second City alums. There was. It's like how do you, how do you how do you have all of that that talent, all that training, and all that experience, and and still find yourself wondering if it's all worth it? 
I think, well, one, I will say this, like, there is like the second city, which is a global business. It's an entity. And then there's an in the comedy community, right? And I will say, I do have supporters and I have friends in my circle in the comedy community. So on one hand, yes, thank you for saying I'm talented, but that only takes you so far. I think it's about relationships, right? And so in a, in a system where people on your improv team or your Herald team or your mod team, you know, give each other jobs, if you're not within that system necessarily and you haven't built those relationships, I don't know that you can later like have a cold ask and you'll just like be on a show with them. So mm-hmm. I will say that like, I didn't necessarily, you know, I was assimilated and I could do the scenes and I could do the work but I wasn't like in their weddings, you know, I wasn't like their kids don't call me aunt so-and-so, you know, they're not, we're not that deep in relationships. So I think that's the one thing you have to understand. And then I think the other part of it is, is, and I, and I have my friends and I have my family and I, though they are not who's who in the comedy community, I, my circle supports me. And so, yeah, maybe I can't build on those connections necessarily, but also you have to remember this also people that come out of these, so many talented people that come out and they're also struggling too. So everybody on, you know, the stage that I was on, you know, yes, people have gone on to do great things, but all of those people are wildly talented. It doesn't mean like just because they didn't get something doesn't mean they aren't. It's just, it's just kind of the way it happens. Mm -hmm. So I don't feel like people owe me something or like the second city owes me something. But what I do think happened is, and this is the beautiful thing is the skills that I learned there. And I did, I do have some good friends from that, that time that I still remain in relationship with. And so some of them I didn't even perform with, you know, for various reasons. But I think besides talent and who, you know, it's also who knows you when they get the opportunity. Right. And so some of those people, when they got their opportunities, they weren't, they just didn't ask me or maybe they did. And the network was like, but we don't want her or we don't want someone who looks like that. We want someone who looks like this, or it's just a matter of timing. Sometimes I was too thin. I was too heavy. You know, I looked like I had, you know, like I, maybe I was too black or my hair was, you know, too textured and they didn't appreciate that. I don't know, but I, I know as soon as I started letting go of those things and was like, I just want to work on getting better in comedy life gets easier. And there were people that did throw me jobs like Keegan-Michael Key and Jordan Peele. And um, there's definitely other, you know, projects like smaller projects that I would do and people would throw me a bone and that definitely helped sustain me. But I don't think like your improv troupe doesn't owe you a career. If you're really in it for comedy, you're in it for comedy. So I was okay. Like um, people said, some people hit it as soon as they left, like, TJ Miller hit it as soon as he left Chicago. You know, Mary Sohn and I came up at the same time at the ETC. She was on a hit show years before I was. You know, she hit it. It, It's just, it is what it is, you know? But I think thinking people owe you stuff is, that's not really community, right? That's that's the transactional relationships and you don't want to be a part of that. That's not good. Don't be a person who needs a favor for a favor. Just be good at what you do. And I have to believe that eventually the right project will find you. And for for me, I was fortunate. Eventually the right project found me and I found it. 
So what was your mindset then when you went in for that initial audition for Denise? Well, the initial audition, I was like, my, you know, my family and friends kind of pushed me to do it. But I was like, I don't get these things. You know, they, every time I go in for this, I don't get it. Um, but I did think I'll just do what I want to do. Because after this, I'm going to go back to Chicago. I'll probably like teach classes at Second City. I'll, you know, teach some kids creative writing or how to write jokes. So I didn't have anything to lose, really. Um, I remember the second time, though, when I went to the, when they asked me to do the callback, I was like, no, I'm not going to do that callback because my reps were like, they love you. They love you so much. I'm like, but they always love you. And then I take too long of a lunch and I'm going to lose my customer service job. So I'm not going to go right back here. And they were stunned. They were like, how could you do this? Please don't do this. So I did. I was like, one more time. But I'm on thin ice at my job, you know. So I think I told my boss and maybe like somebody covered for me at work. And they were like, yeah, okay another big audition because you're so funny you're gonna get this so they were like good luck but even I was like this is a joke I was stunned when I got it I just hung up on them when they called me to tell me I got it that's crazy I'm like like, everybody's been saying no I can't figure this out and also I didn't expect it to be honest because I don't know anybody at ABC and I don't know anybody in the Kenya Barris camp you know so if I go by this, what we just talked about, this whole like community model, mm-hmm. technically to get a role on a big show like this, I got to know a writer, right? I got to know at least a producer. I didn't know anybody. I came in there cold. Like you were, we, the, we you literally out, start. You weren't hanging out with Anthony Anderson at the comedy club? No, no, <laughs> no. I, I, and, I, and that also had me down because I believed it. I was like, I can't get this if I don't know anybody. I need somebody to vouch for me. And I remember when I first got there, Tracy Ellis Ross came up to me and said, hi, I'm Tracy. I don't think I know you. And all I could think was, girl, if I was friends with Diana Ross' daughter, I would be telling everybody, of course you don't know me. Of course you don't know me. And everybody else knew each other. It was like, Mm -hmm. you know, because it was a who's who in there. Because we were at the last, this is the last audition. They were going to decide. Mm-hmm. And it was, I was like, I'll put all y'all on my shows. This was like, it was great. But they clearly all knew each other. It was, and I said, I just can't, I can't do it. I don't know these people. And they took a chance on me just from that meeting. And I'm, I'm forever grateful for it. Because again, in a business where, you know, people hire their friends, I, these people were not my friends. They're my friends now. You know, we're, we've become closer. But yeah, it was, I was, I really didn't have a lot of hope left. How long did it take you before you felt like you did belong in that circle, even after getting the job? Well, I don't know, I still, I don't know if I feel like I belong necessarily. I'm still learning because to them, I'm definitely like a straight ahead comedian, you mm-hmm. know? Not even, you know, they know me as an improviser and as a sketch person, as someone who, you know, does stand up. Um, so the world of TV, yeah, it, I feel like I know it more. But yeah, the world of TV, I didn't know, you know, I didn't know we were going to get a new director every week. I was stunned when Anton Crawford left our first week. I was like, what? 
They're like, yeah, we get a new director every week. That's TV. I also didn't know, you know, I sort of knew the difference between single cam and multicam from auditioning for so long, mm -hmm. but I didn't know how much no one would be around when I was shooting, <laughs> that it would be just, you know, a titter here and there, a laugh here and there, but there was no studio audience. And I had been working in front of live audiences for 18 years. Right. So that was, that was immediately like my training had to come back to me to say, what happens when I'm like working on jokes on paper? What happens when I do table work? You know, what happens when I'm just like reading a sketch with my friend and we're just like at somebody's apartment? How well does this work? Van bits, as we call them, when we were touring. I had to go back to that because I didn't have anybody. There wasn't anybody there laughing for me to know if these jokes work. And also someone else was writing the jokes. That was new for me. You know, coming up with the Second City, you write it, you perform it. And so as a writer performer, that was, it was a new experience. And maybe even like when I wanted to really pursue late night, I knew to how to, was working on writing for other people, but I had never really been, not really handed someone's complete comedy. And they were like, it's done. This cake is baked. Do not add anything. <laughs> so now I'm getting better at it. They definitely let me improvise a little bit, but um yeah, I feel like I'm starting to fit in, but I certainly have my moments where I'm just like, what is happening right now? And they're just like, the camera isn't on you. Why are you acting so hard? I'm like, oh, I thought it was. They're like, no, it's on your back. Have you never done this? I'm like, I have not. No, we're looking at Mark Paul Gosselaar. We're not looking at you right now. Oh my gosh. Like I go so hard on every take. I mean, and sometimes he'll, like when he finally told me, he's like, it's not on you. And then I would forget my lines. And he's like, oh, no, don't be this woman. And I was like, what? He's like, every time you find out the camera's not on you, you forget your lines. But I need you to still say the right lines. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's important, too. And I don't know why it happened. So now they don't tell me if the camera's on me. And right. I'm kind of like, can you see me? And the camera operator would kind of be like, can I tell her? And they're like, don't tell her. If she right. thinks the camera is off, she will go nuts. Right. Just always act as if the camera's on. That's true. That's a good, I'm going to take that into the next season with me. <laughs> Thank or, you for that advice. Or always, well, what, what do they tell you? Like the, the, the secret to reality television is that people eventually forget that they're on camera. Ooh. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But for you, it's the reverse. <laughs> you have it's to reverse. always, you always have to believe the camera's on. Yeah, yeah. And there's also times, I'm sure, where if I think the camera is not on, I might be doing something weird. And they'll say, like, can you not do that with your hands and feet? And I'm like, huh? They're like, it's on you. I'm like, oh, my goodness. Well, as I was saying, kids, and I'll, <laughs> then I'll, like, sit up straight and, like, try to, like, tell the joke again. And, like, and then someone will say, it was better the last time when you thought we weren't looking. Just keep that. <laughs> So yeah, I tend not I tend not to know when the camera is on. But with that and also knowing like the camera catches everything, like I'll say this like coming from com like live comedy, you can get away with stuff and people they can say, Did you say that? And you could like you could you could say you'll never know because we just kept going. This is on tape. So they know when you had a bad take. <laughs> they know when you flubbed it up. Versus like you know, that that was the beauty of like being in a comedy troupe, being on a, on a team. 
you know, even if you messed up, it's like, uh, I'll get it better at the, at the nine o'clock show. Right. Whatever. And especially improv because it just, it disappears. Came out of your mouth and flew out. Yeah. Yeah. It disappears. Um, you know, one of the things about the pandemic, my, one of my close friends has told me, like, he believes that this is ultimately, like, despite all the people who have died and who've gotten sick, that for society as a whole, like, it's a great pause because it, it, it allows us all to reflect not only on, like, who we are as a society, but as what we want to be as individuals. And so for all of those people who had been doing comedy like you, but but still haven't yet made it. And now they're stuck in this pause. What, what kind of advice would you have for those people? It's so hard. I would say you have to keep pushing forward and it could be very small though. I think let's minimize and minimize our efforts and save our strength so that we can fight another day. So now is not the time to try to shoot an entire web series on your iPhone. Stop emailing people and telling them to do that. But maybe write, you know, one log line a day. I think conserve your energy, conserve your resources, conserve your relationships. We're, we will come out of this. And it's hard for me to see the future because I'm definitely a, I can't think of the word, but I, I'm definitely like doomsday about this at times. I have, I get very upset about it. And I think it's, it's just human nature, but we, we will come out of it. And I think when we do, all the ideas that you've had, if you can write them down, that's great. But it's okay to just kind of conserve your energy. You don't, this is, does not need to be your own personal renaissance. You can rest. I, I went to work because the network told me I needed to go to work <laughs> during this. But I definitely wanted to stay home in bed and put the covers over my head. But also... I might be a star, but I'm a new star and I still got bills. And my husband reminded me of that. He was like, you still, we still got student loans. So I, I went back to work, but it's okay if, you can, if you're doing what you can just to get by, do that. If you have to focus on your survival job, focus on that. I mean, the key now is just to, to stay alive, stay healthy, focus on your mental health. And then when this starts back up, we will all have a natural rhythm to get back into it. But I say, to put no pressure on yourself right now at all. You know, also the, you know, the year or so heading into the pandemic saw a resurgence, not just for you individually in your career, but also for black sketch comedians in general. You know, you saw um, a black lady sketch show with Robin Thede and bringing up all those black women as writers and performers. Um, you know, you mentioned Amber Ruffin with her show, uh, Bashir and Diallo with Sherman's Showcase and the other and the South, South Time um, Astronomy Club that sketch group had a series on Netflix. It seemed like like there was like a resurgence of of hope that that black comedians were were becoming more than just the tokens that that you had, you and others had suffered from before. Do you feel optimistic that that'll continue or, or get better on the other side of the pandemic? Oh, absolutely. I think when you have like your life on the line <laughs> and it's like life or death, well, now I think we realize we don't have to deal with this stuff anymore. I think that's really where that letter came from to the Second City and to my 
from my, my colleagues and from my black performing family. It's like, yeah, we have nothing to lose at this point. Cause I mean, we're, there's a killer virus that could get any of us at any point. Now that we've set our peace and people are working on projects where they demand, yeah, not to be the only black person or want to work with the best. And these people happen to be black. I think, yeah, the projects are still coming. Things are still coming. I think people are being more savvy and more decisive about what they want to be a part of. And I have no doubt as we get back into things that it, it will remain the same. I don't think we'll ever go back to the way it was before. I mean, I, I could not imagine, or, and if we do, I think there's extreme caution, like at any point <laughs> we, for so long, black people, black people were treated so horribly, horribly. And now, I mean, like we're ready for things to change and it's not, we're not asking you to, we're demanding it. And I think artistically artists are doing the same thing and setting that standard. Well, and, we're, and it's not just like, I was gonna say, it's not just like, a, you know, they talk about the seat at the table. Mm -hmm. I'm, I don't need a seat at your table. I need you to leave the room. I, we have this, <laughs> I got it, <laughs> we're good. <laughs> Well, Christina, I'm glad you, you spoke up. I'm glad that um, other performers, not just at Second City, but also uh, the UCB and the Groundlings spoke up. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see the success you're having now. And um, I will talk to President Biden about those uh, student debts. Thank you. Thank you very much. Please say something. <laughs> I mean, wasn't that, something. wasn't that one of the things that they were going to do is was eliminate the student debt? Look, I, every day I want to, I wish I knew his number because I want to say, you know, they watching you, man. Come on. Well, <laughs> they are watching you. Well, I'll tag him on this when, when, when the podcast comes out. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Thank you so Thank much, you. Christina. Thank you, Sean. This was really great. It was. I really, speaking to a comics comic makes me feel like a comic. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks first.